Welcome to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast, where I interview some of the best coaches in the business to find their secrets and share them with the world. I'm Scott Ritzheimer, founder and CEO of Scale Architects, and we help founders and leaders find the right coach at the right time so they can achieve the predictable success they deserve. And a huge part of that is helping great coaches do great work that creates enormous demand for their services with way less effort. If you're a high demand coach, I'd absolutely love to share your story and expertise as well. So stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go. Welcome. Welcome once again to the Secrets of the High Demand Coach podcast. And I'm here with yet another high demand coach, and that is Mo Rusikoff. Mo is a is passionate about developing leadership and communication skills. She's authored a unique three-step system called AMT for experience expanding our stress responses beyond the normal fight or flight that we all wrestle with. She's a conscious living, conscious loving, big leap certified coach, and one of the four people designated as five chairs, five uh, choices ambassadors in the U.S., both her and her husband. Uh, in group or forum settings, I love this about you, Mo, is that uh, she loves to use improv games and techniques uh, that really allow her and her clients to experience the truth that Pluto gave us so long ago. That is, you can discover more about a person in an hour of play than a year of conversation. Uh, remarkable, remarkable. So right out of the gate, there's so many things that we can run with there. But uh, Mo, before we get to all of that, I'd love to just hear your story. What, what were you doing before you got into coaching and how did that ultimately lead you to make the leap? Um, I had done a great deal of uh, public performance. I had my own bands and I'm about 25 years. Uh, I was a, <laughs> a legend in my own mind uh, worked with rock and roll bands and then made it a pivotal decision. Uh, gosh, it's been so long. It's coming up on 40 years, uh, to join a 12 step program. Wow. Um, and as a result of that, uh, I ended up at, when I was in the, all the rock and roll bands, you know, it was, you know, big truck of equipment and all the uh, managing all the dudes in the band and, what what an incredible actually looking back opportunity to hone my uh, people management skills mm. uh, and my entrepreneurial skills. Yes, uh, because I was the one who booked the booked the band, made sure we had the equipment, organized everything. Uh, and then the people that are attracted to live music, like oh, I'm going to get involved in self-expression and the club owner isn't paying you. For your self-expression. Yes. The club owner is paying you to keep people circulating on and off the dance floor. And there's a formula that goes with that. Wow. Um, so I'm forever navigating these egos all around me, um, which, again, very interesting. I uh, reverse reverse um, psychology. I had one person who probably today would be uh, uh, identified as oppos opposition deficit disorder or something. But no matter what I asked him to do, he would do the other thing. 
And there were certain songs in the in the repertoire that I considered dance floor nerve gas. It's like people would hear one or two uh, notes or beats and they'd be, oh, I can dance to that. And they'd go out and dance. Um, and it's interesting. The more people were singing along with the words on the dance floor, generally speaking, the more popular and beloved the song was. So if I knew one needed to really trigger people to rush the dance floor, I would ask. I, I knew uh, the song My Girl was very, yeah. very. Yeah. And our bass player played a beautiful rendition of that. Uh, and, and I knew if I wanted him to play it, I'd say, hey, Theo, it's your choice. Play anything but My Girl. <laughs> and everybody would be out on the dance floor. I'd get what I wanted. He got what he wanted. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. In nonviolent communication, they say meaning resides with the listener. Mm. So um, I, I applied just everything I learned in the many, many years. Now, I did not like the idea of being a completely starving artist. So I always had hospitality gigs. And I would work the days nobody else wanted to work, like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So there I was using all kinds of psychology to maximize my tips and being very entrepreneurial in that regard. Uh, and then eventually when I got sober, I didn't want to carry all the boys around on my back all the time. Um, and I just had a nightclub act in Chicago where I had one piano player. And we got the job done in, in that regard. But while I was in Chicago, or actually I moved to Chicago to take improv training. And the reason I took improv training was I was a complete and utter failure as a stand-up comedian. Having come out of music where there's like a real formula for a pop song, what they tried to teach me, and I did, I went to comedy college uh, in Detroit. Um, and... Um, they tried to teach me how to do the comedic formula. And the comedic formula is lead line, punch line, lead line, punch line, lead line, punch line, build, build, build. And then you do something later in your sketch or your uh, set where you do a callback so that people, and what, all you're really doing is you're, you know, just creating this little formula for people to follow along with your ideas. Yeah. Uh, and comedy is incredibly tricky. If you do three jokes in a row and all three of them bomb, you've got to work like crazy to get the audience back on your side. Mm. So because of my uh, years in music, I had great presence and people were sort of leaning in and expecting things of me. But I was like really intellectual and esoteric and doing these strange, wild, off the wall comedic things. I've since decided I'm I'm a humorist, not a comedian. Um, <laughs> and my my comedy coach, college professor, said, "Go to Aus or go to Chicago. You want to you want to uh, develop ideas. Sketch work is great for that. Go for improv." I get there. I find out that um, improvisation was actually uh, historically it was back to Neva Boyd in Franklin Delano Roosevelt's public works project. He funded that. And he funded this so she could use these theater games um, to uh, teach immigrants how to integrate better into the community. Mm. One of her stolen students was Viola Spolin. She wrote a book called um, the uh, Improv Games 
theater improv games for children. Uh, and they were teaching the survivors of Auschwitz, children who had survived Auschwitz, how to act out their trauma. Wow. Yeah. Really, really powerful stuff. Uh, and the students that were working uh, at the University of Chicago at the time um, were a young group of people who became the Compass Players. And they were the original iteration. I had the pleasure of working with David uh, Shepard years and years later. Uh, and he was kind of the godfather of improv in the United States because he oh. bankrolled the Compass. Mm. Compass rolled over into Second City. I trained at Second City. And uh, it, it probably would surprise people to know I took 18 months of training to learn how to look as if everything that's happening is spontaneous. Wow. And I just fell in love with, I fell in love with the games for the um, experiential learning that you get about yourself. Because mm -hmm. you walk away from a, an improv and if you're really in the improv, you literally have a hard time remembering what happened. Yeah. But then it kind of hit, hits you with another wave. Uh, and it's like, hmm. Oh, I, because when you're doing your original improvs, you're drawing on your own experience mm. in those in those initial games. Um, and then then eventually I joined a group called Applied Improvisation. And there's uh, Applied Improvisation uh, is premised on the idea that uh, there's a therapeutic benefit okay. from improv. That you, yeah, I mean, you can lie on the couch for 10 years, 18 months of improv. I learned more about myself. <laughs> wow. And, and it was in a way, uh, there's a book called The Body Keeps Score. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Bessel van der Kolk. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And here's a perfect example of like how deeply this stuff goes. It's in our bones. Uh, when I was five years old, I was chased by a dog from behind, ran around, bit me in the face. And I'm 20. I want to go running. I hate dogs. And somebody says, well, this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. This is when you be commanding. You look at them, be the alpha, blah. And I tried it and it worked and it was fabulous. But if a dog chased me from behind and barked at me, I would throw my hands over my head and crouch into the fetal position. Wow. Even though intellectually I knew I had, quote unquote, conquered it. Mm -hmm. So this is another point of um, improv training and why I like to do uh, some continuity work with that. Yeah. You can, you can have all the tools in the world. You can understand it. You have an intellectual understanding of it. And you will always, always revert to those earlier traumas and those earlier triggers. Wow. So um, we, do, we do something called persona play. Uh, persona play in improv. We do this in the workplace and in uh, forum gatherings and forum gatherings. People know each other really well, but mm -hmm. invariably they learn even more about each other. Sure. And then Rich, Rich and I met on match.com and uh, I should have paid attention that he, he, he and I had equal uh, inability to focus on details. <laughs> <laughs> we rely on our uh, administrative assistant in in phenomenal ways. She's delightful. She always That's has awesome. a smile on her face. Um, anyhow, um, he thought I was in Austin, Texas, 
and I was actually in um, I was actually in Northwestern Pennsylvania. My mother had been diagnosed with end stage renal failure, um, and I was a dark horse candidate to be her caregiver. Wow! And the doctor said she had six weeks to live, and I said, "Oh, okay." And I kind of took my life and went, you know, <laughs> threw it out the window. Wow. I'm going to take care of mom, but. <laughs> Little turd lasted 18 months. Feisty <laughs> <laughs> Irish lady. Yeah. Uh, and it was the most difficult and most richly rewarding experience I've ever had in my life. Wow. To she knew she knew exactly what she wanted from death and the, the kind of deaths that she wanted and the kind of treatment she was entitled to. I grew up mm. in a litter. Uh, when the oldest was 12, the youngest was born, and there were eight of us. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, th- th- plenty of opportunity to develop sub-personalities in a situation like that. And the Hendrix work really talks about, um, uh, w- there's a specific interview that we you use when a person has an issue, they're triggered, you go through the persona interview, Mm-hmm. You name your personas, you identify them, and you befriend them. Mm. So I have some, I've never met my uh, paternal uh, great-grandmother. Her name was Tilly. She died years before I was born, but she was so legendary that I heard about her when I was a child. And I have an internal Tilly. And Tilly says, and a lot of women have a Tilly. I'm the only one who always does the everything because I'm the only one who always does the everything just right. Move out of the way. You don't know how to load the dishwashing machine. And in fact, loading the dishwashing machine is probably some value your mother tried to drum into you. Oh, we do it this way. Oh, we do it that way. And the the grand scheme of things, not the most important thing in the world. And then from my father's side of the family, incredible Catholic uh, indoctrination. Heavy duty judge Judy. And then my mother's side of the family, her mother was widowed at the peak of the depression with mm. a brand new mortgage and six children to raise. So she's little orphan Annie. Wow. And I have to turn around to Rich some days and say, can't, ha- can't have a conversation right now. The triplets are on me. Like all yeah. three of them are working on, on me all together, all at the same time. And that'll happen in high stress. It's, it's so fascinating because, and there's just so many different pieces here. I, I think uh, what's interesting to me is you now use all of this in a work setting. Uh, and and so many of us want to kind of divorce those two things, right? It's like, well, that's my personal stuff. This is my work stuff. Or that happened to me a kid. That has nothing to do with my job in this company right now. And so how is it that you help folks to kind of bring those worlds back together? Well, if you if you have nothing but robots working for you, uh, you can be exclusively linear and don't have to worry about human beings. If, however, your company employs human being persons, emotions, uh, triggers, communication, all those things and refining that. And I have uh, one slide I can't share with you right now, but it com- it compares and contrasts ways of being sort of rules for success. One I call Genghis after Genghis Khan. And one I call Gandhi. So, and particularly men, and I have nothing but empathy and really deep, deep concern because the male role is so challenged today. Mm. 
I read a, a report called the back when before the internet broke my brain. It was like this book, this thick called the height report on male sexuality. It was a misnomer. Uh, it was really kind of like the height report of men self-reporting what it meant to be a man, what it felt like. Uh, mm. And one of the things that was exposed, this is delicate trigger warning. Um, men uh, felt that they, the only time they could be fully vulnerable was during and right after the act of sex. So I'm thinking, why the hell wouldn't you want to have sex all the time? Right. If that's the only time you can sure. access, you know, your half of your humanity. Um, and I think the modern woman has a lot of difficulty in uh, recognizing if, if I'm in a room full of a thousand men and I say, has anyone here ever felt like they had to prove their masculinity? Every hand in the room would go up. Mm. If I'm a thousand women, I'd say, if is anybody here ever felt they had to prove their womanhood? They'd just like look at you like, what are you even talking about? Wow. What is that? You know, so they're they're and children are not gender typed when they're two months old. They are by the time they're five, mm. five months old. So a little girl is taught, I'm in distress. People are going to come to my rescue. People are going to come give me aid and comfort. A little boy is taught, tough it out, figure wow. it out, you know. And so here are men in this new world. Um, uh, if they're having even healthy lust, well, oh my God, what am I supposed to do about that? You know, uh, 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 and and I see how to make a little distinction there between healthy lust and uh, objectification. You know, if a, if a beautiful woman walks in the room, the, the God's truth is everybody responds to a beautiful woman, period. You know, <laughs> I was in an elevator in Chicago with a six foot tall, blonde, you know, 38, 22, 36 woman with legs up to my shoulders. <laughs> I mean, just drop dead gorgeous. and. I'm trying to uh, make everybody else in the uh, uh, elevator more comfortable. And I look up at her and I say, I always wanted to be tall, but I had to settle for being deep. And she looked down at me and said, I'm both. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. So um, that, that, that sort of real um, incre incredible power that women have. Mm -hmm. um, they don't, I don't know that they recognize it. I think they utilize it, but that's, that is also a Genghis trait. And a Genghis is when you're struggling for power mm. and power is a zero sum game. Yep. Uh, you give it away. You, somebody takes it from you, but there's, uh, and it only ever changes hands. Power only ever changes hands. It requires uh, that you can't, there's no transparency the secrecy, uh, and it's based in hierarchy. And hierarchy is based in the idea that one person's blood is blue and everybody else doesn't matter. This goes back to Greco-Roman times. Mm. So this stuff is deep in our bones. Yeah. And the other side of it, the Gandhi, what, what distinguishes those behaviors and actions from the Genghis side? The Gandhi side is, uh, the Gandhi side says, we are all responsible to, to ourselves to be, to act in strength. 
One of the dirty little secrets about power is people love to give their power away. People don't, making conscious choices, conscious decisions requires effort. If you're uh, uh, falling in behind your favorite demagogue or your favorite uh, religious person or whatever, you don't have, there's all kinds of things you don't have to think about Mm. because all the answers are there and they're supplied. Yeah. On the Gandhi side, you're, you can have transparency, you can, you can collaborate, you can co-create, uh, and, uh, and, and it's a much more creative resource. When you're in the Genghis side, it's my way or the highway. Right. Well, we're getting this done because I said so. And uh, any sentient being, especially like, if, uh, like your leadership team, these are high-value people. And you go, my way or the highway, people like that, you're going to lose your team. Yeah. Um, and I, in, in America, unfortunately, there's kind of like compete, uh, control, consume, uh, um, you know, these, uh, <laughs> all these talk show hosts with their voices, you know, <laughs> um, and I, I believe the fulcrum on which we make that turn is to recognize the reality that effective as of birth control, women have sovereignty and agency that they haven't had in the history of the species. So I feel like we threw the bathwater out with the baby. Mm. I feel like all the rules changed, but there are not new rules. So my uh, graduating from Genghis to Gandhi is my uh, poultry attempt to offer a set of rules that can work for all of us. That's remarkable. What would you say then kind of in, in light of all of that and this, you know, this path that you've been on and taken others on as well, what would you say is the biggest secret that you wish wasn't a secret at all? What, what do you wish everyone listening today knew? Play, 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 play. <laughs> um, when my son was six years old uh, and his name is Freddie, at the time we we're calling Freddie, his name's Frederick. He had a little boyfriend over to play whose name was Aaron. And Aaron kept calling him George. And I walked in the room and I said, how come he's calling you George? Why isn't he calling you Freddie? He goes, oh, he likes to call me George. And I'm okay, mom. I kind of like being George today. You know, if we were that open and that present and that in the moment and that unstuck from I'm the boss, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Our life and the life of the people around us would be, you know, really glorious. I'll give you a great example of using improv to um, twist uh, an an interpersonal, our marital relationship uh, drama that was taking place. My husband is incredibly mild-mannered. He's just mild mannered. He never sits in the head of the chair. He's like unassuming. Uh, he operates from wisdom, not not power. That's another part of uh, Gandhi is operating from wisdom, not power. Um, but we'd get in an automobile and oh, Jesus, he was the raging bull. You know, <laughs> he's telling all the drivers what to do. And I'm over here getting all triggered. You know, the, my nervous system is like, God, he's going to get us killed. And so finally, one day we're riding down and he's doing this, acting out on this road rage. And I said, ah, he's got the app. And he said, what app? 
When you took your car in last time, I had them put in a GPS geolocator, a little little uh, device underneath your front tire. And there's a game and people get points. And then the game is called PRO, Pitcherist Piss Rich Off. And they get the app and they do things purposely to annoy you in traffic. And it was it was so he, he it was hilarious. It was fun. And then we, you know, somebody do something silly in traffic and he'd go, he, has he got the app? I said, yeah. And, you know, I'm putting money away from retirement. This is a very, <laughs> we have some brand extensions for people who ride bicycles. And we found out there were buses in Mexico that had purchased the app. <laughs> so fantastic. again, rather than stay embroiled in the drama, which is a, like, I'm right, you're wrong mm. kind of way of doing things uh invite yourself into uh, just playing some games around it yeah. and invite yourself into your own creativity it's glorious it's liberate, liberating and the more you invite yourself into your own creativity the more creativity you have to access yeah yeah and and i'd love to actually uh hit that because uh, again i know this is what you do not just you know for friends or you know people that you know and love in your life but this is what you do for folks in the business world as well and teams that are trying to come together and perform together so how can folks you know they're resonating with so much of your story that they feel how much they're missing it in the work environment how can they find more out about you and the work that you do um, I have a program called Rekindle, Living Without Fear, Loving Without Limits. And we do a deep dive on all these points. We do some persona play. We're going up to Montreal and we're going to be using a lot of these uh, techniques. I, I love that when Rich and I work together, he's uh, he's got so much experience. He didn't mention it yesterday, but he's a coach, eight Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award winners. Wow. And, and a person on his roster who I'm not allowed to say uh, was just uh, just made the Inc. 5000 this year. And these are people that Rich has coached with for 20 years. Mm. Um, and uh, so we go in, we do these things, and he's got this really solid, incredible business wisdom. And don't get me wrong, he really is very, very keenly attuned, a lot of intuition on his part too, on the emotional and personal side, because he mm. does whole, whole person coaching. He, he it's not like, uh, you know, uh, one of the people we're talking with has just is just going through an incredibly painful divorce. Wow. He's not even on our roster currently. Rich has spent hours with him, you know, via a video call for the last five or six weeks, just mm. giving him support. Yeah. You know, um, so play, play. And don't ever think you know what's going on with anybody else. Oh, yeah. And then the last, the last really important um, aha recognition that we learned in the Hendricks is a concept called drift and shift. You make an agreement with another person, they're going to blow it. They're not going to pay complete attention. They're not completely focused. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're, you know, you think you have an agreement. And then two weeks later, you know, things go real well for a week or two. And then two weeks, they're like, the, the agreement's gone. Well, they, they had this concept called drift and shift, and they use the metaphor of an airplane. The airplane departs Cabo San Lucas. We're off to Chicago. We put the coordinates in. 
and we're bound for Chicago. But if the pilot never readjusts the coordinates for the reality that once you're up in the air, you are drifting. You're in the real world. You're in the air currents. And you have to reset the coordinates to mm. recommit. And, it, and a graceful way, and Rich and I have learned a lot of these little graceful ways to communicate with other people so you can be in this nonviolent communication space. Um, is to say, hey, I'd like you to recall you to our agreement. Um, this, this, and this. I think we might have drifted. Do we need to change the agreement? Can we shift back to the original agreement? What have you discovered? How 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 would it work better for you to keep the spirit of this agreement? Yeah, those kind of conversations instead of <sighs> you know the drama of. I told you to do that and you didn't do that and you never do that. And I, you know, I can't get you to do that. And like all these victim status stories that we, because yeah. when we were growing up, we, we grew up in the, in the Genghis frame and that shit is great. If you're conducting a war, yeah. <laughs> it's all the rules of war, war to win. If you're with human beings on the personal side, you absolutely must have those Gandhi based tools because yeah. hu human beings, dignity, agency, respect. You cannot get another human being's cooperation without recognizing one way or the other their need for dignity, agency, and respect. Yeah. Well, Marina, just uh, just a remarkable, remarkable set of advice. Uh, again, we could just have this conversation for hours. There's so much to unpack here. Uh, but I, I just want to thank you for being on the show, for, for challenging so many of the preconceived notions that many of us have and giving us a space to really come out and, and play with it, right? To yes. not beat each other over the head with it, but really explore how to, how to become better, how to move into the Gandhi space. I so appreciate you being on. And for everyone listening, you know, your time and attention mean the world to us. I hope you got as much out of this remarkable conversation as I know I did. And I cannot wait to see you next time. Scott Ritzheimer here. Thank you so much for listening to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast. If you are a successful coach, consultant, or advisor who's built a strong book of business and would like to be on the program, please visit go.scalearchitects.com. And if you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media and just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials? If you know someone who'd be a great guest, you can tag them on social media to let them know about the show. And make sure you include the hashtag high demand coaching. I love seeing your posts. I love seeing your guest suggestions. Thank you so much. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content to make sure you don't miss any of those episodes. Go ahead and subscribe now. Your thumbs up, your ratings, your reviews, they go a long way to help us promote the show and they mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, you can go to our website, www.scalearchitects.com, or you can follow me or the company on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.